Welcome to the Collectability Podcast. Today, I am delighted to welcome Dr. James Nye, Chair of the Antiquarian Horological Society, better known as AHS, and until very recently, a master, the master, of the worshipful company of clockmakers. Now, James has had a long and distinguished career in the watch and clock world and is perhaps best known for his interest in and passion for electrical horology. At the AHS, he has run the Electrical Horology Group for 25 years. And in 2011, he founded The Clockworks, which is based in southeast London and is the world's only museum, workshop, library and meeting space dedicated solely to electrical horology. James was born in the UK, but his family soon moved to Uganda. Returning to the UK in the 1970s to attend high school, James's interest in horology was ignited by one of the teachers who was also a part-time local watch repairer and had an extensive workshop in which James would spend most afternoons learning about clock repair. His school also had an electronic clock system, which James looked after, and his fascination with time distribution systems began. After reading theology at Oxford University, James spent a couple of decades in commerce. However, clocks increasingly filled his time as he assembled a collection of early electrical horology. From the mid-1990s onwards, he began researching various electronic clock companies and some of the case studies underpinned a PhD at King's London, which is where I'm assuming the title of doctor came from. James writes on horological and historical topics and lectures regularly. James lives in London with his wife and two daughters and it is from his hometown that we are speaking today. Welcome, James. Well, thank you very much indeed for that extraordinarily long introduction, which is not really merited, but I'm very pleased to be here. We're really honoured, James, that you're talking to us today. And we've got lots of exciting subjects to discuss with you. And I think our listeners are going to have a wonderful opportunity to learn from you today, which is something that is very near and dear to our hearts at the collectability to help people learn more about horology. So you've had a fascinating life dedicated to watches and especially electronic clocks. I love that this passion was ignited at high school. Not many educational institutions would have had a clock repairer teacher on site with a workshop. But I think what is perhaps most interesting is that as a teenager, you became fascinated by time distribution systems. Where do you think this came from? Was there anything in your childhood that have, might have triggered this interest? Well, to be honest, I don't think it was anything you know, exogenous to the school that you know was deep in my psyche. I think it was simply being exposed at around age 13, 14 to a, you know, a classic institutional building of the sort that one might find you know anywhere, a large old school or you know, factory building or hospital or any sort of complex, perhaps from the 19th century, a big rambling building in which you might want to have lots of dials in different rooms regulating the lives of those who work or study there or who are even in care there in a hospital. And the school I attended in Sussex had exactly that sort of system. And at the same time that I was learning, you know, bench repair of traditional mechanical objects, there was a need for somebody to supervise that system, literally the thing which would cause the ringing of a bell to end each period or each lesson and then five minutes later the beginning of the next one it was all done electromechanically and centralized from one single controlling clock which then looked after lots of dials around the school and I was given charge of it and I simply loved being responsible for it I had a mechanical watch early on later a quartz wristwatch and I would time towards the end of each lesson you know I would watch the seconds ticking down if the bell didn't ring within a few seconds of the correct time I would be racing across <laughs> the quadrangle to get to the clock to to set the bell off and I think just the novelty of it and the electromechanical appeal of it to a teenager was strong and I fell in love with systems like that. 
I see. Okay. Well, I mean, as I said, I still find it absolutely wonderful that that's what you learnt and became passionate about when you were at school, because it's unusual. I think it was unusual then. I doubt that such a thing happened anywhere else in any other school. Can you just give us a short tutorial on exactly what are time distribution systems? I understand that they date back to the 1840s, which seems so early because we're all thinking in the 1840s everything was mechanical. Well, indeed. And the world was populated by very, very large numbers of mechanical clocks at that time. And I think civilization really didn't care up until around this date for extraordinarily accurate time, except in certain precise arenas. I mean, the scientists had begun to want precise time from the late 17th century because with the advent of things like the Royal Society and experimentation, time bases were important. But for the general populace, time simply wasn't that important. Our lives were governed by the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun and the use of sundials to correct clocks, which need correcting constantly if you're going to run your life according to the sun. But there are things that occur in the middle 19th century which begin to make it more important to know the exact time and to have the same time in lots of different places. One arena, the sort of popular wiki version of the story is that the advent of the railways makes it very necessary to have the same time everywhere for reasons of safety. If you've got hundreds of tonnes of steel hurtling down tracks, uh, everybody needs to know at what time it is happening and you can't have local uh, time zones and, and different times. That's absolutely true. It's only part of the story. There are other reasons that people wanted to have the same time and began distributing it. Alcohol licensing, the opening hours of pubs, Things like that are other areas, the regulation of factory work. There's another interesting thought that's only really been uncovered with more recent research, which is that with the advent of a submarine cable between the United States and the UK in 1866, that the time it took for information to travel across the Atlantic was shortened dramatically. And if you think in sort of put your Wall Street hat on and think of information about stocks and shares being critical, before that cable, it might take 12, 13 days for a piece of financially sensitive information to travel from, say, Wall Street to the London stock market or in the other direction. But with the advent of the cable, that time, and we can determine this from very careful analysis of moves in stock prices in the period, that shortened down to less than three days and perhaps even within the same day because now you could transmit the information. There's still the time to encode it and decode it. So here is an example of a place where people were interested in having the time against which to measure things. Actually, financial markets are a good example. There's a concept in in lots of different industries of gate closure. At what time does something happen? And in financial markets, let's just pick a time at random. A bargain struck at one minute to four is value today. A bargain struck at one minute after four is actually a value date tomorrow. And so there's an example in the financial markets. You really want to know accurately what the time is. And by about the 1870s, there are people in different cities such as London or Berlin in Germany or Vienna in Austria who are looking to see if the same time can be transmitted from one single sort of authoritarian source. You can have one clock you're going to regard as your central truth uh, in time, but can you somehow transmit from it out to other clocks around your city the the right time. And in the case of London and Berlin, that was done using electricity down cables, which were typically running on the same path as telegraph lines. Extraordinarily, in the case of Vienna, this was done pneumatically using air. So you would have a central source in which you'd pump air up in a cylinder to a higher pressure. And then your controlling clock each minute would open a valve and along a large maze and interconnected network of pipes arranged across your city, a wave of pressure would move and would advance the remote clocks by one minute on their dials. So that's in um, Paris and Vienna. That system was adopted in Berlin, London and others. It was done electrically and in London, which is probably the first place this occurred, it was pioneered by 
a chronometer maker, John Alexander Lund, who had offices close to the Bank of England on Cornhill. He was obsessed with the time, but also he was, I mean, I think he would be recognisable to a modern IT professional. He built systems which checked as to you know whether a signal had been received, flagged up if it appeared not to have been received, so you knew you had to do something. But in essence, what he did was to take a daily signal from Greenwich, the observatory, the, our source of sort of true time in London. He would correct and keep a very accurate time on a regulator clock in the window, visible, and then using uh, a series of lines hired, rented from the post office, which governed telegraphy, he would offer you a service in which if he could add a little extra bit of kit to your mechanical clock that still needed winding up, that every hour he would send a signal that would rather like, if you can think of the same process as pushing the crown on a stopwatch to have the hand fly back to the 12 position, what he did was to introduce two little sort of pincers which came through the back of the dial and which would zero the hour hand using a little blade that he would attach to the back of the minute hand and so each hour your clock was corrected of course that means there's no accumulated error we're i mean we're familiar with the point that if you wind something once a week i mean less than a minute wrong in a day do you notice perhaps not but four days that's four minutes five days is five you begin to notice if you never have an accumulated error then the clock is apparently always correct, especially if it doesn't have a second hand. If it only has a minute hand, then it just looks like it's always right. So these sorts of systems emerged. They also encountered huge problems because uh, just as now people dig up roads, dig up pavements, cables get broken. If they're strung across buildings, the wind might damage them. And so we moved from a situation in which there was great civic ambition to have transmitted time across cities that encountered problems to a more modest proposal which is that if you have a clock in a building it might be a bank a law firm's office something of that sort you might have a single clock that is your regulator that's going to be precise and you keep it to time and then around your building under your control in a place where the cables are not likely to be disturbed you can keep the time distributed and that's really the same concept that underpinned everything through the end of the 19th century, through the 20th century, and indeed such systems now, they, they routinely do exist. Uh, in many places they've been replaced with simple battery-driven individual quartz movements, quartz clocks, but there are still systems that one can buy. Companies still manufacture these distributed time systems where uh, it's felt the economics are still viable and where accuracy is demanded. Would it be like an electronic board at an airport clicking yes, through? Yes, precisely. And uh, I think, and... well, perhaps um, the most obvious, perhaps familiar to international travellers, would be something like on the Swiss rail system, where, I mean, obviously, a very iconic dial that we're familiar with, the very stripped down look with the, the black batons, but the seconds hand with the red dot that travels around, if you stop and look, you'll see that, in fact, that seconds hand travels ever so slightly fast, and it then arrives at the 12 position, and it is held there for approximately two seconds, awaiting the signal from the central control clock that says, OK, now you can advance. And at that moment, the minute hand will travel through a whole minute and you'll see the seconds hand start again. Now, that concept of the slightly fast seconds hand being arrested for a couple of seconds and then starting, that's 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 decades old, but it's still clearly favoured because if you travel around Europe, you'll see it. But I mean, the Swiss uh, railways are the you know, perhaps the most blindingly obvious place to see it. Rail systems, I think, are uh, an obvious example. Airports, yes. I think increasingly we're probably seeing individual quartz clocks in locations like that. And you certainly do in schools and hospitals. Thank you for explaining that in so much detail, because I think we just don't think back to how time was distributed accurately. At Collectability, we've really dived deep into the contribution of quartz timekeeping because that's in 1948 is when Patek Philippe really grabbed it by the horns and really put a huge amount of money in research and development to create the clocks that you've just been talking about, which we'd often refer to as master or mother clocks 
that could run up to many hundreds, if not thousands, of subsidiary clocks. By 1948, clocks were receiving their accuracy from radio waves. But prior to that, how was time measured accurately so that those systems knew what time it was? There's a long developmental period in which the sort of hierarchy of standards gradually develops. And it's important to think of hierarchies because it's rare that there is just like a single source and then everything else takes its time from that single source. There's usually several layers. The classic example of the source of accurate time across probably a couple of centuries in many major centres would be an observatory. In essence, observations of stars... um, of the heavens, essentially, through telescopes and with the timing of those, the observatory can arrive at an accurate time. They can control and regulate at least one of the timekeepers in the observatory. That's going to be, you know, as far as they're concerned, the correct time. And then from the middle 19th century, since observatories start connecting themselves with the outside world using telegraph lines, so that in the case of London, for example, you would have signals from Greenwich starting to be distributed. And typically, you're always going to look for the pathways, and we sometimes call them corridors, along which it's easy for signals to be transmitted. So, for example, telegraph lines typically followed railway lines. If you're going to cut something through the country for a railway line, then it's very convenient to string telegraph lines along poles along it. So if you can think of any nation that has an expanding network of rail and telegraph poles, a little bit like the veins in a leaf if you look from above, you can think of time travelling down those veins from some centre, and it might typically be your main national observatory. Then you'd perhaps have subsidiary centres, and the example I gave earlier of John Alexander Lund and his offices in Cornhill, he's a good example of somebody who is a part of the hierarchy. He is receiving from Greenwich but then keeping a local time right next to the Bank of England and from there transmitting that. Uh, what he, of course, the, the rhetoric was that you were getting Greenwich, accurate Greenwich time. I mean, in reality, it's coming through somebody else. And then you can see that perhaps that comes to a building. But then I'm going to make this up. But if you imagine that you've paid for his service and you've got clocks on lots of different floors of your office that are corrected, but there's a perhaps another floor to which the signal doesn't reach. I mean, you might set your pocket watch by one of the ones that's actually connected and then travel upstairs and then set something locally. So you're, you know, now you are carrying the time. By the way, the carrying of time physically was important all the way through until the Second World War in that in London we had uh, what she was affectionately known as the Greenwich Time Lady, Ruth Belleville, the daughter of two parents who had done this before her. But she went to Greenwich with an extraordinary watch made by Arnold. (laughs) She was 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 Mr Arnold. And it was set at Greenwich and then she carried it. And she sold that time to watchmakers and chronometer makers around London because uh, it was more convenient for them to have the time carried to them rather than them go to Greenwich to get the time to regulate their chronometers. So you can see that there's a gradual set of hierarchies in which time might come from the centre out towards the perimeter. But there's a fascinating thing that occurs in the early 20th century. You, You referred to radio waves and you're absolutely right that from not long before the First World War, you begin to see the transmission of time by radio. The Eiffel Tower is a good example from 1910, providing time signals. Um, probably, and that was and that was throughout Europe, wasn't it? It wasn't it, just France. No, no, you could, receive, uh, you could receive you could receive that signal in London, and crucially, I would say, um, you can receive that on board ship. We all know about stories of being able to carry time at sea in order to navigate. We know about carrying a chronometer and not interfering with it because you're carrying time from the home base. It's a fascinating prospect now in the early 20th century to be on board a vessel at sea and to have the radio able to give you a time signal. It's really becoming very commonplace for the systems we've talked about to be used everywhere. One clock in your establishment, your building, whatever it might be, transmitting the time around to lots of other dials. But as we move into the 1920s, experimentation in essentially in the lab using quartz started the thing about 
quartz. It's an extraordinary material. It has a property which is that essentially if you squeeze it or deform it, strangely it can produce an electrical signal through being deformed or put the other way around. If you connect you know, two cables to it and put current through it, the crystal itself deforms. I mean, that is the derivation of a, you know, a quartz watch or clock has a tiny tiny quartz crystal in it which is vibrating it's changing its form based on you know an electrical current going through it it's piezoelectric it has this strange property and that was discovered and started to be used in radio experimentation and the production of frequencies this is long before thinking about it as an oscillator in a clock or a watch it was to create very stable frequencies which could be used in communication and and all sorts of things like that and then over the next 20 years clever experimentation produces the timekeepers which are again are we're still in the realms of sort of laboratory equipment and as is so often the case i mean some of that early research work comes out of the first world war but it's the second world war in which you know that's when money is thrown at technology often and developments occur quartz really comes into its own and it's still doing the same job, the quartz crystal, as the more sort of easily understood oscillators in the things that we have around us. Like if we've got a mechanical watch with a balance in it, and perhaps your watch has a crystal back, you can see the balance oscillating and you know it's going fast, but it's actually very visible. And you know that it's perhaps the beats per hour. Well, they, they vary, don't they? But you know, perhaps commonly in the range of, say, 18,000 or something like that. When you look at a clock with a one meter pendulum, you can see it takes one second to swing from side to side. So they're very different numbers of beats per hour, but it's quite tangible and you can see them. Of course, in the case of a quartz crystal, you're talking about 38 odd thousand times a second. And so we can't see it anymore, but it's doing the same job. And it's when we go from the much lower frequencies up into these high ranges mm -hmm. that extraordinarily accurate time emerges. This is um, a rule of thumb that's easily disproved, but in essence, you could say higher frequencies means higher precision. I can imagine some listeners screaming at, at the, <laughs> uh, and saying, no, that's not always true. But there's a broad uh, correlation between the frequency going up and the accuracy going up. Well, we up. know that for sure, obviously, with quartz. And the other large change that occurs here, because I talked about observatories earlier mm -hmm. and you can see that it was the astronomers right and people i mean from early times you can say people looking at the skies were mm -hmm. determining mm -hmm. time the sun told us the time and then gradually it's the astronomers looking for you know particular events managing to control their clocks they tell us the time in the world but in that middle 20th century period it switches from being the astronomers in their observatories to being the physicists in the laboratories who are creating these devices you know, with an oven inside, with the quartz crystal in that that's temperature controlled and all of these clever bits of technology that begin to tell us the time. And you know, then eventually, you know, in the 50s, we have atomic clocks in which really what we're doing is tuning the quartz clock based on the physical properties of a particular element you know the, the classic one is cesium um we you know we have we have cesium atoms being fired through chambers and we tune the quartz clock until a particular event occurs and we're we're really deriving a fundamental property of that element uh, in tuning our clock and we you know we have atomic clocks now, I mean, and that, that progression has occurred all the way through, and now we can time, you know, to 10 to the, you know, 18th. Um, it, it's now two clocks that are a metre apart in height are telling two different times, and you can start to determine, you know, gravimetric effects just on different times. It's a different world. That's all invisible to us. It's, it's in the higher realms of physics, but along the way, you know, we've managed to launch satellites, put atomic clocks in them, that enables us to, you know, usefully drive our cars around knowing where we are. But, you know, on the back of it, everything depends on time. The calculations that, you know, the trigonometric calculation of where you are depends on time, essentially, and, and some clever trigonometry. So, yes, that's the transition. And along the way, clocks for institutions went perhaps from being quite readily understandable as things with ordinary dials and pendulums and so forth to being rack-mounted devices 
such as the Patek Philippe ones that you were talking about earlier, I mean, there might still be a dial somewhere on it. But in, yes, in a sense, you, you get this sense uh, that there is a lot of electronics in there. Yes, it looks like a computer or a stereo system or something that had never been seen before. Yes, precisely right. And there is a sort of semantic difference that maybe I mean, and this is not you know electronics and electric you know electrical things those those two terms i mean they're generally to do with you know the transfer of power or the flow of, of electrons so for a physicist that that means something at, at a very street level we tend to think of electrical horology as being the earlier electromechanical stuff so it's really like traditional stuff it's got balances and pendulums and the stuff that's very easily understood but we're using electricity in some way to wind a spring, lift a weight or whatever it might be. Whereas electronic devices, well, that's where you need to start having, you know, capacitors and transistors and things involved, which are doing part of the work of maybe dividing down from a high frequency to a, a low one. And in the collecting end of the world, I think there's quite a distinction that, you know, there is one group interested in in the earlier rather more basic machinery but there's clearly a growing trend to be very interested in electronic things i mean and in the watch world whereas okay the emergence in the 70s of mass market court stuff you know it's easy to see how some people might look down their noses at it but there are groups of collectors now utterly fascinated by that transition and very inexpensive original you know watches are now of great interest absolutely of course yes. of course there are also highly highly desirable versions you know the beta 21 is famous right. and of course right. so yes um, and the... it's wonderful to see appreciation for something like a beta 21 now whereas it wasn't so long ago maybe even five ten years ago that to your point they were looked at with a slightly turned up nose but now they're very sought after so yes that miniaturization that particularly japan and seiko as a brand springs to mind really took miniaturization and mass production to another level altogether and of course caused what a lot of people think was a potential end of mechanical timepieces but thankfully it didn't and we've learnt now today that the two live very happily together and it's wonderful to learn about this period that you've discussed in great detail because I don't think a lot of us think back to we just think there was mechanical timepieces and clocks, and then quartz came along and digital started. But there was decades and decades of development using, as you said, you explained very clearly, energy, which was electricity, and then moving into components, which were those very sophisticated electronic time systems. I think there's always a very... Distribution systems. There's always a very long overlap in technologies. I mean, it's hard to think of examples where people abandon one technology because a new one comes along and everybody uses that from the next day. There's actually a long overlap. And often old technologies are improved and improved and mm -hmm. improved. Mm -hmm. The thing about electricity, which emerges in the early 19th century is that, I mean, of course, it did seem to have sort of magical properties and there were a lot of very bizarre and esoteric ideas. In essence, I think as a thought experiment, think of sheds at the end of people's gardens that inventors would go to in their quiet hours. <laughs> yes. I think in the, early, in the early 19th century, everybody in the world wanted to add electricity to something that already existed. Rather like the sort of internet boom of 95 to 2000 it doesn't matter what you do in life in your business add the internet and it's going to be better now that wasn't necessarily true and we have a few survivors from that time some of the big companies but of course it generally didn't work just think of any 19th century devices some had electricity added and it made them very much better i usually refer to the you know mechanical carpet beating sweepers existed <laughs> early on but when you add a motor and you have something vaguely, you know, the ancestral link to our modern Hoover, it became better. So this is an example so of something... vacuum cleaners. Vacuum but... cleaners survived, but a lot of things, and one can go through extraordinary patent applications for the application of electricity to something that would never benefit from it. Now, in the case of clocks and watches, there, there are benefits, and or, or, there are also many mad uh, patents which we can see for clocks which just simply didn't really work and then hence there are no survivors you can see the patent but none survive because they mm -hmm, didn't work mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but in essence you know all clocks and watches are answers to potential problems thrown at watches and clockmakers. you know i want to go swimming well it's got to be waterproof i want to go near magnetic fields it has to be anti-magnetic i want to climb everest i need a low temperature oil 
And one of the things thrown at the watch and clockmakers is, well, can you make it go for a very long time without influences from the atmosphere, but also without interference, so that you know we want to be able to take the time from it, but we don't want to, for example, open the case door. Uh, in order to get at it to wind it, we want to be able to take the time from it for months and months and months. Well, electricity allows you to do that because you can keep it wound, you can perhaps lift a weight, and you can take the time signals out. You can have a contact inside that closes each second. So now you've got your seconds impulses, and you're not interfering with it. There are lots of ways in which that can be beneficial. This is James Nye on the Collectability Podcast. I hope that your wonderful explanation will encourage our listeners to learn a little bit more about this area of horology because it's fascinating. I mean, it covers everything, as you said, from astrology to physics to the most advanced technology and timekeeping systems were using the most advanced technology, weren't they? From the very beginning. It's generally Man the case. Man trying to conquer the ability to accurately tell the time and disseminate time evenly and accurately. I think so. The astronomers for a long time were the most demanding clients. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the most powerful people, if you think about it. They ruled everything from, from the first um, humans we know. They were dictating how, here in England, so Stonehenge was built and um, all everything like that. The heavens have always been important and then they become extraordinarily important with the emergence of the Enlightenment and the Royal Society and this scientific age in which one might be surprised. Of course, they did awful experiments, you know, excluding the air from capsules with animals in or whatever it might be. Terrible things. But so many of the experiments do have a time base in them. The answer to the question being posed is probably going to include something which has a time element in it. And so as part of the apparatus from essentially the 1660s onwards will include a clock and then when we have the establishment of the Royal Observatory and other similar observatories in other countries the desire to make accurate tables and so forth for navigation it means that not only is the astronomer demanding from the telescope makers they want the best it, they're telling the clockmakers we want the best and so they're a very tough client and that's uh, one of the big driving forces in pushing precision timekeeping forwards over the 18th and 19th centuries and and it, it ends up with just after the great war you have a clock generally known as the short free pendulum in which for the first time we can begin to see inaccuracies in the earth's orbit because it's so accurate that it's disturbed by the very base that it's on and indeed the rate is uh, capable of demonstrating the effects of the tides, the, the changing gravitational effect of the tide and the movement of the moon. So, yes, timekeeping you know, becomes ever more accurate. And this is still before we've left the pendulum behind, it, you know, that, that, um, that which I, I always find um, remarkable. The other thing about it, from a collecting point of view, is that although as in any field, you know, the very finest and the very best things are very valuable and they're sought after and they're difficult to acquire. It's still a field in which, you know, rather more modest objects, they're just so easily found. Like and what? Give an example. Well, um, recently we went on a lovely walking tour in London after dark to look at some gas lit lamps which are in Westminster around the Houses of Parliament and Westminster Abbey. There are well, about 1,500 lamps still oh, really? lit by gas in London. Wow. There are many, many more in Berlin and a few others around the world. And they produce the most wonderful glow. The colour temperature is much lower than an ordinary street lighting. And it's, it's a lovely atmospheric thing. Now, for a very long time, those lights, the flow of gas to them has been controlled by time switches, which turn up the gas and turn down the gas. But that's um, controlled by a, a clock. Mm -hmm. And that clock is rewound electrically so these are extremely mundane things time switches i mean we don't probably have many in our homes anymore but a lot of people will recall having a device which you could physically set the time or maybe you use little pins in little holes or whatever it might be now nowadays it's very you know programmable and it's, it looks more like a digital alarm clock but mechanical time switches 
were first created in the late 19th century and survived all the way through until extremely recently. But all those lamps around London have precisely those things in. But here's the really clever thing. A lot of those time switches, not necessarily the ones in the lamps, but used in various, for example, in stairwells um, for controlling the lighting for safety. Um, right. Goes on when it's movement. Well, makes it rather than movement, but just the time of year because of course our days in the northern hemisphere the amounts of light during the day are you know they're much longer in the summer and much shorter in the winter and so if you have a stairwell where perhaps you're partly relying on natural light but partly on incandescent light you don't want to waste electricity electricity has always been expensive i know it's very expensive now but it's always been expensive you don't waste it so you might have a time clock that turns it on and off but you want it to change every single day and you'd like it to track the seasons and so there are magnificent examples of humble time switches with kidney cams inside that uh, track the seasons so that the time of switching on and off is varied every single day, tracking the changing length of the day. Now, there's a very humble object that has not much value. But the interesting thing is that um, for anybody with an interest in you know, mechanical timekeeping, Put one of these time switches in there. It's quite a large object. I mean, it's, you know, fill your, um, you know, it's a handful and show them what it does. And you'll find they'll spend quite a long time looking at it and they'll get quite excited about it. I can imagine. And, and, and yet it is, it is, uh, it's, it's not a beautiful thing. It's not aesthetically particularly pleasing. But when your mind connects with the mind of the designer and you see, oh, that is such a neat solution to a very mundane issue we want to save electricity right. and we'd like it to change and we want it to do it without us interfering with it and you know just for it to do it all year round um people do have small collections of I these love things that. i hadn't and, ever <laughs> thought of that so i mean i i went bizarre there quite deliberately yes but deliberately because things we take for granted without even noticing that yes the lights come on at different times depending on the time of the year and the hours of daylight wow Somebody had to invent that, and that's an actual <laughs> thing. So I can understand, James, completely why <laughs> this has been a almost a lifelong passion for you, learning about electronic clocks, because it's endless. It goes into every single aspect of our lives. I'm sure we could have a whole podcast just about that without question, but let's move a little bit on now. You and I first met at the annual time symposium of the National Association of Watch and Clock Collectors. And you gave an impassioned speech about how joining the Antiquarian Historical Society was the best value for money around. And you shamed me into realising that I was not a member and immediately joined. We at Collectability are trying to encourage people who are interested in watch and clock collecting to join societies like the AHS because you've been around for a long time you've been committed to educating people about horology so can you tell us a little bit about the AHS and what are the advantages to becoming a member? Absolutely. Um, the AHS, uh, you're right, it's been around for a while and it's only perhaps in the last 10 years that it's managed to reach a vastly wider audience. And it's done that really through, as so many people are doing, digitising assets. Because in essence, for collectors, for students of the history of horology, you know, the ability to find the references, to find the material, you need to make it easy and I hope that we've done that. Horology, you know, if you're a watch or a clock person, you're in a field where it's extremely likely that there is some sort of signature. There's something a, a, about the object you're interested in which is, you know, you can immediately read it. Like the, the signature on a painting, I mean, you know, there is a name on the dial, very likely a retailer perhaps, perhaps the maker. The first thing you want to do is, okay, who's written what about this? What what can I find out? You know, I need dates, I need production, I need whatever it might be, whether it's early or late, whether we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years old or 10 years old. So the society, um, the AHS, based in London, but very much a, an international organisation with uh, members in over 30 countries. There's about 1,600 members um, approximately 200 in the United States, which I hope is going to be a growing community. Very important to us, the United States. Um, we have some wonderful and committed members there, very valuable to us. Um, obviously, the UK is important, but we are in Australia and New Zealand and Hong Kong and South Africa and Israel and Luxembourg and Belgium and Germany, I mean, everywhere. 
it's obvious that international community can't necessarily turn up to meetings in London. But four times a year, we produce a 144-page peer-reviewed journal. It's generally, I mean, of course, I'm partisan, but it is generally regarded as the most scholarly and most properly peer-reviewed horological publication in the world. I can vouch for that. It is. Uh, Now, the entire run since inception is digitised and available to members online. Which is incredible. And you can search it. But not only that, we have various other journals, particularly the Horological Journal, the British Horological Institute's journal from the late 1850s onwards, plus for the watch collectors, very importantly, about a decade run, which is the entire run of uh, the Practical Watch and Clockmaker from 1928 to 1939, a key period in which some amazing watches now obviously vintage watches were produced but studied and reviewed and drawn and pictured in remarkable detail i mean that is all available to our members it's searchable online and you'll find that using the i know the jargon is the elastic search technology that we use you have instant results so what i'd say is vital to our members is the ability at any time of night or day to search on you know whether it's maker make type of production you know dial material i mean you could search on anything and have that material instantly there are sections and groups devoted to particular subjects there is a wristwatch group as well as an electrical group and a turret clock group people interested in public clocks they have their own groups and then we have regional sections there is a united states section so essentially it's like other horological organizations but we feel the quality of the digital assets is very high those are available to members, in addition to which, actually, for the general public, there is a tremendous amount on our site that's available to everybody. Mm-hmm, so, I mean, mm-hmm. that, that is the AHS in a nutshell. Well, just to hear about the digital records of research that you keep on file, I mean, there is a, a life of long learning there for anyone because we have now such a dramatic increase in the interest, particularly of wristwatch collecting, but as you mentioned, that important period in the 20s and 30s where technology that went into wristwatches dramatically changed. And to go back to that time, learn about it and see how it's influenced today, because it very much influences today, is in a very important learning. And it just changes your appreciation about watches from simply owning what was in into owning something that's got a real history as to how it was made. We are very much about stories. I think that you can find all of the technical details, but I think the community of AHS members often tends to be the people that really love the stories behind mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, and we love telling them in our lectures and in our articles and retelling those stories to each other. So it's a community of storytellers. Yeah. Wonderful. So please, listeners, go online, ahs.org, and have a look at this wonderful, wonderful horological society. Now, we're going to move to something that I think particularly for listeners outside the UK is this weird and wonderful world. And I'm referring now to the Worshipful Company of Clockmakers, where you have held the very prestigious position as master for the past year. The Company of Clockmakers is both extremely historic, but it is, importantly, the oldest horological guild in the world, having been formed in 1631. And I think for those of us who live in the USA particularly, it's hard to fathom an organisation that goes back four centuries. But there you have it in a nutshell, is horological history. Can you put on your ermine robe or whatever it is he would be wearing and um, explain the company and lead into the difference between freedom and livery. That's, I think, probably the most alien world to many of our listeners and probably get confused with weird Masonic groups and strange handshakes. (laughs) Certainly. Well, um, I mean, a a first thing to say is that although it is called the Worshipful Company of Clockmakers, um, it it could be clockmakers and watchmakers. There is absolutely no distinction. And indeed, early early members were were absolutely watchmakers. And it, it, it is a livery company and an ancient guild, as you say. Could you explain what a guild is and a livery company? Because yeah. I think, again, that's something well, uniquely British. I'll come to the explanation of livery in a second, but I think guild. guild in general, I mean, we can probably use some fairly negative language in the sense that we're talking about restrictive practices. In early modern Europe, 
and this would apply in the UK as well as in you know places that wouldn't we'd now call Germany. In major cities, you could not simply set up in your trade, whether that was a goldsmith or silversmith or watchmaker or, or clockmaker. You you needed to belong to the guild. And this was a protective practice to protect that trade, to prevent um, wandering travellers just turning up and setting up. It was all about protecting business. It, it's something which would now be very alien to modern business life, but was entirely normal in, in early modern life. And... In London, these guilds would include all of the obvious people like, as I say, goldsmiths, silversmiths, pewterers or the, you know, the makers of things, all of the accoutrements for a horse or, you know, the clothing, the mercers, um, the cloth workers, the, the weavers, bakers, the, ba the, and the bakers. Makers. <laughs> Each trade would have um, a guild, this body that would protect the business. Now, then the entry into that world I and mean, apprentice is still a very modern term and of course we still create them but it was a rather more uh, rigid practice at the time that we were formed so in the middle 17th century it would typically be the case that an apprentice would start at age 14 they would serve a seven-year apprenticeship so until they're roughly 21 and it was often the case that their parents actually had to buy that apprenticeship they had to hand money over to the new master the master took on the responsibility to look after you for the seven years but of course would get a lot of work out of you so you're being trained but the, you know it's a bargain in two directions and you talked about f freedom and livery well the, the the freedom bit comes because when you are freed at the end of your seven years you you join the freedom of I the company see. to which you are you know to in which you've been enrolled broadly speaking um and you no longer have to keep paying the master uh, that's right. So you're now you're now pretty much there and being independent. You probably might spend some more time working for them as a journeyman, but in essence, you've served your apprenticeship. You are now just perhaps into your twenties. You've you've endured all sorts of restrictions. You know, not being able to marry or drink or whatever. I mean, they're, they're, one has to um, be somewhat doubtful always that they really kept to every single restriction. <laughs> but um, now. The freedom of a company is, is different from actually taking the livery. I mean, livery is a modern word that would be familiar to people, uh, for example, who keep horses, because you'd think about livery there. But in essence, it means uh, sometimes just the colours the, that uh, of various things like flags and standards and, um, I mean, in modern day, you know, ties and robes and things like that. But when you become a liveryman, you're joining a, a smaller group within your company, um, which is essentially uh, of an elevated status. It's going to cost you more, but you are now joining something which binds together you and other members of other livery companies because you are now the group that actually have a role in civic life in the city of London. So when we're talking about the city there, we're not talking about the big London that includes Westminster and that's massive and has 8 million people these days. We're talking about that thing that's sometimes called the square mile, the financial district, the smaller bit, the ancient bit, the bit that still has a Lord Mayor, which has its own governance. It has a thing called the corporation. And the members of the livery actually get to vote I mean, that's where our Lord Mayor comes from. They're voted in. So you become part of the electorate. You become part of the, uh, the governance of the city. So it's simply belonging to a worshipful company of whatever it might be doesn't give you that. There, it, it's a smaller band that you, um, you actually have to join. So you're, you're raised to the livery. Um, so those, those are the, the differences, just being free, which anciently meant... Um, having served your apprenticeship and you were now uh, a free member of the company, but then you might progress to be part of the livery. And, and certainly companies choose their own, uh, some are governed by a master, some by a prime warden, whatever the term might be, those are only drawn from the livery. And there are limits each company has a limit set by the corporation. They're not large, but in the case of my company, you know, it can only have 300 liverymen. Actually, it has quite a few less. It only has about 170. But we would, we would never be able to go beyond 300 without petitioning to have that limit raised. So it is ancient and traditional. You'll know that the British favour the retention of traditions. What's the case, of course, is that all of the livery companies have left behind that entire regulatory role they once had. Almost all of them once had a role in 
going out on what were called searches. And in the case of my company, that would mean regularly going out to examine the clocks and watches in the shops of clock and watchmakers to assure ourselves that they were of a sufficient quality and that the public were not being duped into buying terrible things. How wonderful. And if we found <laughs> bad things, we would confiscate them and very probably literally smash them up. Wow. Uh, Can you imagine so, how busy you'd be today if you're still doing that? <laughs> so there was, a, there was a regulatory role in actually looking after the quality of things produced. Uh, of course, it was resisted by people who said, you're not, you know, you're not going to look at my stuff. But that, that whole regulatory role and, the, and the, all of the restrictive practices about not letting anybody do the business unless you remember. You can imagine that these have been left behind long ago. And the livery movement has essentially transformed from that ancient uh, restrictive practices type of you know guild network into being bro broadly two things are common to the livery movement these days, which has 110 companies in it. It's essentially about charity and education. Um, they, they all have charities um, which collectively in the last few years have tended to give of the order of 70 to 80 million pounds a year wow. to various charities. Wow. That's that's something which they've all joined together to do. Right. But the other big focus they have is on education. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of schools that are supported by livery companies. But those that have, um, where there is still a trade, I mean, where there's a trade you can link to the original company, then perhaps it's an apprentice scheme, trying essentially to keep the craft alive. And of course, you know, our own is one such trade. We support apprentices in watch and clock making, but it's common, you know, I'm thinking of companies like the Saddlers um, who help to train apprentices in that field. I mean, one, when one looks around, there are a number of companies which have really good historic links to a trade that still exists. Um, it might have evolved, but there is perhaps demand for funding for apprentices and for training, or perhaps to help people through college where they need bursaries and help to get them through. So the livery movement essentially these days, I mean, of course, it's about having a bit of fellowship and, and, and they do get together for nice meals and do wonderful things and uh, keep alive the traditions. But really, their ethos is about promoting the education of generally young people in a trade that's close to their original company's aims and very probably general charitable giving. That's what it is. Right. Um, well, I mean, right now we all know that one of the most in-demand positions is watchmakers. We need watchmakers. Every country in the world needs watchmakers. Now, more than ever, as this interest in watches increases exponentially. So I'm assuming that you guys have been busy. Do you see your role as helping to educate people to become a watch and clockmaker. Without any doubt, that is a major goal of ours. We have to remember that we, we know we only have modest um, means. Some of the livery companies, the ancient ones, the really ancient ones. Like what? Like which uh, ones? Companies such as the Mercers, which is the number one in the list, as it were, they are much older, more established, and they have greater muscles. In the case of the Clockmakers from the 17th century, I mean, you said we were founded in 1631. In some ways, we're sort of Johnny-come-latelys in the livery world. That's quite late. Mm -hmm. We're mm -hmm. number 61 in the order of precedence. And our, our means are modest. But, yes, education is important. We now have 10 apprentices in our apprenticeship scheme. Wonderful. And absolutely, we're trying to help young people advance a career in horology. And we could do that in one way via the apprentice scheme where they might have found somebody a master who's going to help train them somewhere around the uk there are two educational establishments in the uk where you can gain qualifications in horology you can get a degree at a university birmingham city university in horology and you can train also at westdean college on the south coast we also attempt to help um, certainly there are bursaries available for students at westdean so one way or another we're looking to advance education, to provide mentoring, broadly to support um, the trade. We're disappointed in the way that the press sometimes talks about our trade. I think they do this with other trades as well as being a dying trades. And that's not the case. No, Actually, I'd say it's the exact opposite. The, now. the the numbers of students at the institutions I mentioned are larger now than they've ever been. Fantastic. And there is, uh, there is a confusion, unfortunately, in some journalists' minds between something that is dying and something that's simply small. Mm -hmm. uh, um, mm -hmm. Horology is a small 
trade. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know it doesn't have tens and tens of thousands of students each year. You know we have a lot of people who study history or English or mathematics, and it's only perhaps, for example, at Birmingham City University, fifteen students in one year. You know of the order of perhaps you know forty to fifty across the three years of a degree course. Understandably, that you know. People could see that as being small, but it's certainly not dying. It's actually larger than it's been. There is a resurgence in the subject. So it's strongly supported and people want to take the subject up. That's great. But young people need support often. In some cases, there are expenses that they're going to need to meet and we will try to help. In the case of apprentices, what we're very conscious of is that in addition to the sort of training that can get perhaps on a distance learning course that really it comes down to that mentoring help from somebody extraordinarily experienced with you know much later in their career perhaps even retired who can help to ensure that they really do achieve the standards necessary in in the, in their training and in their exams so that bolt on of that resource in in mentoring is something we're keen on mm-hmm, doing mhm mhm well i can imagine and and i mean the company of clockmakers has had some household names as members hasn't it over the years the greatest clockmakers ever have been members of have been liverymen of the company there are famous names like you know the thomas tompians and so forth and the edward easts early on and later on names like you know Vulliamy or i mentioned the the short free pendulum earlier he mm. was a master in the 1950s i mean more recently the name that i think most listeners yes. would recognize would be george daniels who was a master but yes, if you are UK based, there's a f- fair old probability that you'll have been in the company, and that does mean that we we tend to have some of the great the names, names in, yes. in, the, in the list. But it's international, and our own John Reardon from Collectability is a liveryman, so it's opened up now internationally. It's entirely possible. Um, but you don't have to, to be an actual clock or watchmaker, do you? It's as long as you're making a contribution. I think that we yes, and you're absolutely right that we are opened up and we have it. We have a lot of international members. We have to be conscious that we don't have as great an international offering. I mean, the sense it says, what do you get? There isn't a, a vast digital library of, of things. So it does depend upon international members having. Uh, you know the occasional chance to join in things which uh, are based in the UK. We do try to have some things online, but yes, it's absolutely possible. Uh, you don't have to be a bench practitioner. No, we have historians, curators, conservators, restorers, as well as people just with a passion. They might be collectors in one way or another, a passion for the subject. Mm-hmm. And if that comes through, then well, without doubt, we are very, very happy to see you. So it's easy to become part of the clockmakers. I would say also that it's easy to become a freeman to progress to the livery. Mm-hmm. Again, entirely possible. There's a step in the middle that you have to take, which is that you have to gain your freedom of the City of London. You do have to turn up in London and you go through the most wonderful and entertaining ceremony at, at Guildhall in the Chamberlain's Court, where, I mean, you do indeed swear oaths and um, you, you learn about the history of gaining your freedom. And in a way, it was a little bit like having like a license to do business. If you didn't have it, then things, all sorts of things were in your way. If we go back 400 years or 500 years or 600 years, now you, you can gain that. I attend the ceremony every now and then to support my friends that are going through it. And they come away just so joyful because it is, it's a fascinating and historic uh, experience for half an hour. You learn about the historical restrictions that there might have been upon apprentices and other people and, and the, the various privileges to which you have access. Of course, there is always this notion that you're allowed to drive sheep across London Bridge. <laughs> That's the one that most people know, isn't it? it? I mean, and it's a ceremony which is which is actually repeated each year. Really, the best way of understanding it is that it historically it gave you the chance of running your business, doing you mm-hmm. know, running your mm-hmm. life in the city. So, can anyone become a member of? The Worshipful Company yep. of Clockmakers. It, essentially, yes. Uh, so you mentioned it, collectors. We have a lot of collectors that listen to this, for example. It, it comes down to passion. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you can apply. You need a couple of sponsors, um, a member of the court, uh, which is effectively like the board of directors. Mm-hmm. We have uh, this ancient tradition, like the Bank of England. Um, rather than being done by a board, it's called a court. Uh, and you need somebody from the court to sponsor you. Uh, and if we haven't actually met you before then you might have an an interview by telephone or zoom or something like that so that we can get to know you a little Mm -hmm, bit better mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. really i think the key thing 
that we're looking for is passion for horology and that can come in so many different ways Absolutely. and if you have it and that might be at the bench it might be collecting things then you're probably very welcome That sounds wonderful. Well, I'm very glad you've given us that description and I absolutely love the history and the traditions that come with it that have been preserved for four centuries. I think that's something to be very proud of and bravo to you. Congratulations for having served your term as master. That's a a huge achievement. Thank you very much. Before we start to wrap up, let's talk about a couple of the books that you've been involved with. Can you tell us about the general history of horology? And this sounds like a must read for anyone with an interest in watchmaking. Sure. A group of people gathered in Pasadena some 10 years ago for an AWCC conference, uh, probably chatting in a bar late in the evening. I mean, one of those gentlemen was Anthony Turner, a very respected historical horologist, who commented there really should be the big work which charts the history of everything in horology from ancient times to satellites which will look at sundials it'll look all around the world for a start and it'll look across all times and we laughed politely yes, and said you know what an undertaking have, have, have another drink <laughs> and, 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 and in essence i mean it might have taken a very long time but that has happened and anthony was at the heart of it um, Jonathan Betts, formerly of Greenwich, and myself helped him as co-editors, but we were just three out of, I think, 35 authors worldwide that between whom we divided up the task of dealing with whether it might be, as I say, time in India from early times, time in Asia, time in Japan, time in China, and in all technologies, but also covering scientific timekeeping as well as beautiful timekeeping in the sense of objects which were always designed to be luxury items um, the emergence of the wristwatch you know seen probably in the Boer War in the late 1890s the development of the electronic side you know the emergence of distributed time all of these different topics doesn't matter what it is we were supposed to cover it we did our very best unbelievable, unbelievable. Um, and you know it's it's a big book there is something in it for everybody it's well illustrated and I think it's fair to say that you are drawing on you know, a group of experts across the world. This is not an, you know, a book about England. It's not a book about the United States. It, it attempts to be an international coverage across time of a subject. There is more work to be done because there are countries where nobody has yet really done the research. So we couldn't go to a scholar to really get in-depth material about one or two parts of the world. And that's for the future. But for essentially all of Western Europe and some important parts of Asia and for the United States, um, I think Africa is only partly covered and, and Latin America you know, not hugely covered. We, we did the best that we could. But the world is essentially covered there as best possible across, as I say, from the most ancient times through to um, the, the GPS satellites. I mean, it's, 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 all, it's all there. Um, wow. Well, that is definitely a must read. It's um, it'll take a while. It takes a while. It's a, it's a thing to dip into. I mean, the odd chapter now and then. And what yes. you're interested in. Yeah, yes. pre- precisely right. Um, so it's like a reference. It's a, it's a reference work. Um, I mean, and, and, and that, it is true. It is a reference work in that occasionally recently I found that I needed to answer a few questions. And it and it is the one thing I pull down off the shelf because I'll get all the answers I need. Brilliant. Um, so it's, it started, to, even for me as an author, it started to be uh-huh. a reference in which I think, ah, oh, I know where we gathered all that information together. It's in one place. Brilliant. Okay, well, that's definitely going on my bookshelf without question. So thank you for that wonderful summary of it. So now that you've put away your regalia as master of the worshipful company of clockmakers, what is next on the horizon for you? I mean, we mentioned at the beginning that you are focusing on more traditional areas of horology, the 17th and 18th century. What are you doing? I should have a small book out later this year, which focuses on one street. Oh. I used to walk regularly from one part of the city to another to go to the clockmaker's office. And if anybody has travelled to the City of London and can bring to mind where the Bank of England is and Mansion House, that is right at the heart of the city. The Bank of England, it's an enormous building. Its back wall is essentially one street called Lothbury. And 
one day I stopped on Lothbury and I looked around and I thought this is a really short street and my mind was thinking but I know that before the great fire of 1666 lots of clocks were made here and I've seen names on dials all Lothbury how on earth could they all be from here and I was thinking is it like restaurants that all gather together in one part of a city because you know they'll they'll do much better like that and uh, have ended up spending an enormous amount of time uncovering the history of a short street in about the 50 years before the Great Fire. Wow. Which is actually remarkably possible through the surveying that was done with the fire, the records of the church that's at the heart of the street have survived, which tell you an awful lot about the people there, um, the leases granted to them by the freeholders that owned the houses, for example, the Draper's Company, another one of those livery companies, um, which might contain details telling you, ah, oh, the um, the sign of the golden crown was to the left of the three candlesticks. I mean, these n names that you'd see outside 17th century houses. So there's a, been a jigsaw puzzle that I've tried to put together um, over the last few years in an attempt to provide the context for clocks which are on people's shelves and walls. So that rather than you just having a clock by somebody from a street I can probably now tell you who their neighbours were, what their neighbours did, I can, you know, and, and all sorts of elements about their lives. And, I, and in fact, the book in one part essentially walks you up and down the streets saying oh, what, what you'd go by. It also tells you about the air quality, which was appalling <laughs> because we were burning coal that produced ridiculous particulates that were poisonous. Um, you can know that the buildings lent close to each other so that in the winter, the long pathways of light through all those smoke fumes and everything would have meant it was virtually dark i mean i can tell you a lot about the place and that should be out in a little book later this year what fun <laughs> well i mean that's a good inspiration for any of our listeners next time you're in london take a walk around the city of london that james has been describing because historically it is absolutely fascinating and it's really easy to forget about it because there's so many amazing things to see in London but it's a relatively small area and the guild hall which is the, that's the center of the guilds is that right that's their main ceremonial it, area um, a, 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 an absolute governing board area principal office of the corporation of london yeah, uh, yeah and there's right. a fabulous library the guild hall library which yep. has i understand an oh, incredible collection of horological books and it's an internationally highly recognised library for horology. I should caution people, you can't, they're not simply on open shelves and that you can walk in and simply peruse along the shelves. You have to look at its catalogue because Guildhall Library is a place where almost everything is held in huge vaults below and they will go and get it for you. Wow. Um, in addition to manuscripts, so for example, you know, the records of these companies we've been talking about mm -hmm. are often held there. So if you um, are prepared to have a good look in the catalogue to see what what there is and you do some searching and hunting you can call things up and look at them so it is an astonishing horological library definitely. and that's open to anyone up uh, yeah and absolutely yeah yeah how incredible you go and look at priceless historical information that's a treat for sure i thank you so much james it was a real pleasure to speak with you today and give us a taste of this area of horology that is so often overlooked but as you've wonderfully explained is very, very relevant in the history of horology and something we should all spend some time learning about. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks very much for listening. This was the 23rd Collectability Podcast and I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to your favourite podcast platform so that you do not miss any future podcasts. Thank you.